Well, good morning. Good to see all of you here this morning. Glad you're here. If you want to grab your Bible, turn to Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. This is a prophecy, a word from God to His people Israel, probably in the early part of the 6th century B.C., probably between the first deportation of the people of Judah to Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar and the last deportation of the people of Judah to exile in Babylon. So sometime between 606 B.C., when that first deportation takes place, and 586 B.C., when the third deportation takes place. Somewhere right in the middle, not entirely certain, um, but that is when the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. Verse 1 of Ezekiel 18, the word of Yahweh, notice all caps, that's his name, came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Now come with me to verse 19. We'll pick up the reading in verse 19. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Let us pray. A wise God, we seek your wisdom. Open our eyes, enlighten our hearts, so that we may see clearly your wisdom this morning. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> All three of my sons have the uncanny ability to attempt to justify their bad behavior by pointing to the bad behavior of others. One of them is getting in trouble and usually they will say, yeah, but he, and then he will promptly give a laundry list of the offenses of his brother. And I have to tell him, son, you don't get to justify your bad behavior by pointing to the bad behavior of your brother. This is a lesson that children need to learn early and often. Because this is a basic fundamental principle for how we live, move, and have our being in this world. 
You don't get to do whatever you want and then try to justify your bad behavior by saying, yeah, but he, yeah, but she, yeah, but they. It is a problem as old as time. Humans have been struggling with this since the garden. Adam did it. Eve did it. The people of Israel, the the people of Judah in Ezekiel's day, and also they did it before in Jeremiah's day. They were doing it in their day. It persists to today. Every time there is a cry to tear down a statue, every time there's a plea to rewrite history, every time someone says, we're not where we should be, because of our nation's past, or every time that someone tries to say, yeah, but this, yeah, but he, yeah, but they, yeah, but she, every time that happens, these are evidences of the problem that persists even to today. It is the problem of blame. It is the problem of desiring to pass the buck. It's the desire to weasel out of personal responsibility. Ezekiel 18 is a key chapter in the Bible for developing the doctrine of personal responsibility. The people of Ezekiel's day, they were even disputing the justice of God. Verse 25, the way of Adonai is not just. Spoiler alert. When you get through all of chapter, tw- uh, of chapter 18 and you get to 25, what you realize is the people of Israel don't want the God that has revealed himself to them. They don't want him. That's why you have this conclusion in verse 25. Your way, Adonai, is unjust. We don't want the way of Yahweh. And so they were blaming their lot in their day on the former generation. The father has eaten sour grapes. The son's teeth are set on edge. This is a proverb, a well-known proverb in their day. And through Ezekiel, Yahweh is setting the record straight that each person is accountable to God for their own personal actions. The challenge is to maintain the doctrine of personal responsibility in the context in which it is given. We come to Ezekiel 18 specifically for verses 4 and 20. Specifically for the phrase... The soul who sins shall die. And we do that because of personal responsibility. But that that phrase, uttered twice in this chapter, is spoken in the context of, O house of Israel. It's spoken in the context of the corporate identity as well. God doesn't lose that. It is spoken in the context of a rebuke of the nation. In fact, right there in verse 2, When God says to his people, why do you, what do you mean? The you there, we don't have it in English, unless you're from the south, and then it's y'all, and then all y'all, right? It's plural. All y'all are saying this. And there's a distinction that's being drawn there. You say this, I don't say that, God is saying. You, humans, have this clever little catchphrase that, uh, that's foreign to me. God is saying, I I don't say that, you say that. There's also, very interesting about the you there in verse 2, the you is 
all of you, Ezekiel, you're included in that. The prophet had even gotten caught up in the catchphrasing and the sloganeering and all that. Ezekiel, even you, my prophet, you are saying this, which I didn't send you to say because it's just not true. And there's all kinds of faulty assumptions underneath it. And in fact, I'm going to bring it about so that you guys don't say it anymore. Because that's how wrong it is. God communicates a, a number of principles in this chapter. And this morning we'll only be able to touch on a, a couple of them. God says to, to his people, listen, you don't get to blame other people for your sin. Related to that, you are accountable to me, to God, for your own sin. In fact, you are not innocent of sin. You have sinned. And as a result, you ought to be convicted of your sin, and you must turn from your sin to God for life. Because here's the thing, God is of such a nature that He Himself does not desire the death of anyone God desires for us to turn from our sin to Him so that we might live. And so this morning, again, we're only going to be able to look at a couple of those. They're all related to one another, but specifically what I want us to see is God does hold individuals accountable for their own sins. The word of Yahweh came to me. This is Ezekiel, the prophet in his day. And the word of Yahweh, the one true and only God, this is a prophetic word, a declaration from deity, and it carries the full weight inherent in it as the very word of God. What do you mean? Verse 2. We've talked about that you there. The whole nation is speaking this proverb. That's what God calls it, this proverb, this wise saying. Oh, you're so wise with your proverb here, aren't you? There's a bit of uh, sarcasm here. But I don't want you to miss this. Even righteous people, and Ezekiel was a righteous man in a otherwise terrible time, uh, time and place in Israel, but even righteous people can get caught up in that cultural sloganeering. They get caught up in the catchphrases of their time and in their day. It's a temptation that needs to be avoided. Even when it sounds like, yeah, I guess that is kind of scriptural, yeah. Even when it sounds like it may have a biblical basis, we're going to talk about where, where would they have gotten this proverb. Even when it seems to have that ring of truth to it, it needs to be tested against God's word. You have this proverb that you are repeating. You just you keep saying it. It's a well-worn statement among you people. The fathers have eaten sour grapes. The children's teeth are set on edge. Oh, yeah, that's ooh, clever. What does it mean? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and so the fathers, they eat these sour grapes, and what happens is that the sons, are, mm, it could be like just like a bitter taste in the sons' mouths. Or it could be even, now they've it's taken literally, it, it, now they have dental problems. Their teeth are all skewed because of the sour grapes the fathers have eaten. And so what does it mean deep down, though, right? Because it's, it's this proverb, and there's some figurative language going on here. And it means this. The fathers sinned, and the children are punished for that sin. The fathers sinned, and the children are punished for the sins of the fathers. 
That's what it means. Also, the, the house of Israel, the nation, no doubt, they had book, chapter, and verse. Well, they, book, chapter, and verses, I guess, came along a little later. But they, they had Scripture for this, I'm sure. What uh, Scriptures maybe would that have been? How about, um, how about in, in the very law itself, in, in the, the Ten Commandments? Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5. Maybe they appealed to this where God says, You shall not bow down to any graven images. That's the them here. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, listen, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Maybe that's what they keyed on, that phrase about visiting iniquity upon the third and fourth generation. You could also look at Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 39. Leviticus 26, 39. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquity of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. There you go, the fathers' iniquities. Because of the, the fathers' iniquities, we're rotting away, wasting away over here in this land of exile. So maybe some of the wise men had come along and, based on these phrases, had put together this little catchphrase. You know why things are the way they are. Fathers ate sour grapes and children's teeth are set on edge. Oh, wise one, lead us. The proverb in the third place was also designed to get out of personal responsibility. That's what's at the heart of this. What's the assumption inherent in this catchphrase? See, that's, that's the thing we need to do a good job of is, is thinking about the assumptions that lie in back of some of the cultural phrasing and some of the cultural slogans. What are the assumptions? What are the presuppositions that undergird the things that we say? And when it comes to the basic assumptions that are inherent in this proverb that the people were repeating and saying over and over again, the assumption was that the former generations were all corrupt. Yeah, they ate sour grapes. They sinned. But we, the current generation, the children, we are innocent. We are clean. We are free from sin. And so we are suffering God's judgment his judgment is being sent upon us, and, and, and it's sending us off into exile, even though we ourselves, we didn't have a hand in this. It was our fathers passing the buck, passing the blame, weaseling out of personal accountability and responsibility. They did it, and now we're the ones who are suffering because of it. And by the way, that's not just. Hence verse 25 of Ezekiel 18. The way of Adonai is not just. That's their conclusion. What's wrong with this? What's wrong with the proverb? It is wrong. That's why God is going to bring it to an end, he says in verse 3. It's not right. Well, what's wrong with it? Well, first, they certainly did have at least scriptural phrasing that they could point to in order to justify the statement of this, but they were actually misinterpreting and taking out of context those phrases. Go back to Exodus 20. I intentionally stopped the reading because I wanted you to hear what it was that probably these people were saying in order to justify their assumption. But again, it was a misinterpretation. It was taken out of context. God talks about here, yeah, he visits the iniquity 
of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation, of those who hate me. That's a very key phrase that was probably overlooked when they were formulating this whole phrase. Of those who hate me. The divine visitation is judgment promised to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. The third and the fourth generation were those who continued in their hatred and their persistent rebellion against God that the first generation was guilty of. It had just perpetuated itself generationally. The first generation had done it. The second generation had hated God. The third and the fourth generation likewise had done it. They were just as guilty, perhaps even more so, because that's the nature of things. They don't get better. Sin does not get better. Lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. Evil people go from bad to worse. And so, the third and the fourth generation, just as guilty, if not more so, than the original generation. Look again at Leviticus, chapter 26. We read verse 39, but what about verses 40 to 42? But, oh, here's the contrast, ready? But, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that they walk, so that I walk contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. Here, Yahweh is discussing that if the generation, maybe one of those third or fourth generations, if they awaken, they get woke in the way that they're supposed to, and they realize their sin, and even the sins of their fathers. Go read Nehemiah chapter 9. There's some homework for you this week. And you see that there was the corporate identity, there was the individual, but then there was also the generational aspect of this. If any generation does that, and they amend their ways, and they confess their sin to God, personal, corporate, generational, yes, then God says, I, I honor that. I, I will recognize that. I will remember the land. I'll remember the covenant, and I won't bring devastation. But again, the assumption underneath the proverb was the attempt to make themselves innocent before God. I've done nothing wrong, right? But this is, again, a key principle that God had built into the law. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 16, God had said that people die for their own sins. Deuteronomy 24, 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. That's what's in back of verse 4 and verse 20 about the soul who sins shall die. It's rooted in the law. And so the people, they are suffering. Due to generational sin, there's a component to that, sure, that has been carried over and is being practiced by that current generation. Their assumption was they were innocent, and God is telling them, actually, you're not. In fact, you are being punished for your own sins. You have perpetuated the sins of the fathers. They're still there. You're doing them. It is not that the children are innocent. It's that the fathers ate sour grapes, and so did the children. And then when it comes to the justice of God, God is never unjust. That was where they should have started. Instead of looking around at their experience and reasoning backward to, well, God must be unjust. 
They ought to have began with the law, which talked about how the ways of God, they're always perfect, they're always just. And then they should have reasoned outward to their experience. Now, if God is just and we're being punished for that, what does that mean about us and our situation? So the people, they were disputing God's justice when they should have been marveling at his great patience and long-suffering with them for putting up with them for so long. That's a key, by the way, a key principle when it comes to interpreting Scripture. When it comes to living according to God's Word, we should never look around at our experience and then reason backward to God's nature. Rather, we need to start with God's revelation. We need to start with Scripture in order to learn about God's nature and then reason out from there. That This is the starting point. Scripture is the starting point. And so our experience must be informed by God's Word. Otherwise, we run the risk of reading Scripture through the lens of our own experience. And then we end up with kind of a neo-Gnostic reading of Scripture and a neo-Gnostic Christianity. Others have done it before. And we need to be aware of that. But when it comes to this proverb, this well-worn statement, this readily repeated proverb in Israel, it was yet another attempt to do what humans have been trying to do since the beginning. Pass the buck. Blame others for their sins. And weasel out of personal responsibility. It was what Adam and Eve had done back in the garden. It was what Israel was trying to do in Jeremiah and Ezekiel's day. And I believe that this proverb has come back in vogue in some ways in our day. It sounds different. Maybe not sour grapes and teeth set on edge, but it is the same twisted faux wisdom of the present enlightened generation. America began with the original sin, as it were, of slavery. And therefore, the present generation is suffering the consequences of it. That is, the suffering of one generation is due to the misdeeds of the former generation, all the while making sure that we are innocent and proclaiming our own innocence in this somehow. That we are right, and everyone else needs to fall in line. This is what's at the heart of many people's thinking today. We're held in bondage to our past, and that may be expressed in a number of different ways. And here's the thing. It is true, we need to affirm that racism is a sin. We need to affirm that the slave trade of past generations was sin. We need to affirm also that we are guilty of sin, not the sins committed by past generations, but of our own sins. Israel didn't catch that. And many today do not get it either. Listen, we have enough sins on our own. We don't have to worry about They're, they're going to bear their own responsibility and accountability before God for what they did. We will bear responsibility and accountability for our own sins, and it's enough. Yours is enough for you. Mine is enough for me. We will stand in judgment, and we will answer to God. Not for another, not for what they did, but for what we did. And we will be judged by the sovereign judge, each according to his way. That's what God says here in verse 30. 
Therefore, I will judge you. Ezekiel 18, verse 30. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. And don't miss how the corporate aspect of this catches with the personal aspect of this. Therefore, I will judge you, that's a plural, O house of Israel, there's the corporate identity, each one according to his ways. There's the personal aspect of it. We hear the clever slogans and the catchphrases of today. <clears throat> there, can be, there can be no peace without justice. No justice, no peace. That's the cry of the modern-day critical social justice warrior. And we need to reply, yes, that's right. And the death of Christ is that justice. Any other kind of justice, any other pursuit of justice, in any other way, is going to be insufficient. And it will never be complete. And, and we're, we're always going to be having to chase our own tails in order to finish it and accomplish it. And we never will. But in Christ and the cross, we have the complete satisfaction of the justice of God for sin. Your sin and my sin. And so it's no wonder that verse 3, God says, As I live, this is oath language, As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. God making a solemn oath, swearing by himself, as it were, since there's no one greater for him to swear by, says the writer of Hebrews. He's going to make this proverb useless in Israel. He's done it before. He can do it again even in our day. What will rise to the surface as we get deeper into this chapter, and we're going to have to continue to look at it and unpack it in uh, the coming weeks ahead of us, but as we get deeper into this, here's God's overall argument. It is this. Every person who eats sour grapes will have his own teeth set on edge. And all this is rooted in verse 4. The sovereignty of God over everybody. The sovereignty of God and himself as the sovereign judge of all people. Behold, all souls are mine. All souls. All lives. Black lives, brown lives, every life. All lives are mine. They all belong to Yahweh. There's your starting point for this whole thing. It starts with God and his sovereignty over everybody. This is an affirmative declaration of the sovereignty of God over all human life. All human lives belong to Yahweh, both the ones that are alive right now, those that are come, those that, have, uh, those that have come, those that will come, those that have been born, those that are unborn, all of them belong to Yahweh. The fate of every human is in the hands of God. And so the soul of the Father is in the hand of Yahweh. The soul of the Son is in the hand of Yahweh. And now, based on that, this is where our phrase comes in that we, we catch on to and we utilize so very often. The soul who sins shall die. Personal accountability is rooted in the sovereignty of God. That God is sovereign, and so therefore, yeah, the soul who sins shall die. The soul who sins. Sins is a, this is an ongoing thing. Though The soul who continues sinning, the person, the life that continues in sinning, there's no turning to Yahweh. There's no repentance. There's no faith in Yahweh. There's no observance of the Torah. There's no obedience to the law of God. The Lord being patient, bearing with the sinner, 
that he, the sinner might repent and believe and live by turning to God. That's the context for this, and that's what is being said here. For such persistent rebellion and such callous rejection of Yahweh, all that remains is death. What kind of death are we talking about here? It could be the extinguishing of physical life. It could be perhaps death due to exile from the land, being taken off into foreign captivity. But certainly it would include the second death of being banished from the presence of God Almighty. Soul who sins shall die. Jump down to verse 20. Let's repeat it again. The soul who sins shall die. And by the way, there's a lot going on from verses 5 to 19. There's these hypothetical situations that God presents. A hypothetical righteous man. A hypothetical unrighteous son. A hypothetical righteous grandson. And and we'll unpack that next week. But again, the soul who sins shall die. The one that continues in rebellion against Yahweh. The one who continues and persists in sin against the one true and only living God. All that remains is death. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father. Nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. Again, each one's going to bear their own responsibility. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. Well, we'll talk about this more in a moment, but suffice to say, not only do you not get to point backward and say, well, because of them, things are the way that they are, and and now I'm suffering because of it. But you also don't get to point backward and go, hey, you know what, because of my granddaddy being a gospel preacher or his daddy being an elder in the church, hey, I must be good, and I have my ticket punched to heaven. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Which, by the way, informs their current situation in Israel. They're looking around going, well, man, this this is terrible. Why are we suffering? We didn't do that. And God is saying, actually, not only have you done that, but you're also doing worse. And your own wickedness is upon your own head. Stop denying it. Stop Stop trying to point elsewhere. Stop trying to pass the blame. You are guilty, God is saying, before me. What does it all mean? It means you don't get to blame anybody for your own sin. You don't get to blame your mom. You don't get to blame your dad. You don't get to blame your sister, your brother, your aunt, your uncle, your grandma, your grandpa, your great aunt twice removed. You don't get to blame the governor. You don't get to blame the current president or the previous president. You don't get to blame the leader of another country. You don't get to blame the segregationists from previous generations, the slave owners, the founding fathers, the settlers, or the white men who discovered America. You don't even get to blame the devil himself. Read James for more on that. And you certainly don't get, don't get to blame God. Because, well, he made me this way. I was born this way. No, you, can, you don't get to blame God either. The way of Adonai is unjust. How does he answer that? Here now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? He turns it back on them. Your sin is your sin. Your wickedness is upon you and remains upon you so long as, now here's where we come in on the other side of Calvary, so long as you remain apart from Christ. Christ has borne all of our sins in his body on the tree. 
And it is his righteousness that is given to us. And it must be his righteousness. You don't get the, you don't get the rest in the righteousness of anybody else. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself. And so when it comes to your righteousness, again, you don't get to claim any other person, any other human's righteousness. The only other righteousness that is alien to you that you can appeal to is the righteousness of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, we don't get to say that, well, you know, because my family's been in the church for five, six, seven generations, uh, you know, I, somehow I get a free pass to heaven. Your family may have had a hand in, in building this building, may have had a hand in building another building, may have had a hand in planting churches or missions work or proclaiming the gospel. My daddy was a gospel preacher. His daddy was an elder in the church. That all may be true, and what a rich and godly heritage that is. That's a great thing. But their treasury of righteous deeds followed them to the grave, and they rest from their work. And again, it comes back to the righteousness of Christ. You know why they did what they did? They were doing it because they recognized, first and foremost, they had a righteousness that didn't start with them. They had a righteousness that came from God. And based on the fact that they had been declared righteous before God Almighty because of what Jesus had done, they sought to do righteous deeds. What does it Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2? He says, we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christ must be our righteousness. And based on Christ's as our righteousness, then we seek to be righteous. Then we aim to practice righteousness, as John says in 1 John 3 and verse 7. And righteousness, it is expressed in those righteous deeds that are done in gratitude to the righteous God for what He did and what He accomplished in the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ, on our behalf. So what do we do? Well, verse 32 concludes this prophetic word. God says, I have no pleasure in the death of of anyone. He doesn't desire that. Will it happen? Yeah, that that does happen. But you've got to understand, God's disposition toward that, He doesn't delight in that. And yet, His righteous judgment demands it when it comes to sin. So what do we do? Uh, So turn and live. And for us today, it means turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing before Him who we are in light of the glorious holiness of God Almighty and saying, I can't do this on my own. I can't save myself. Lord God, I need you to do what I can't do and save me through the righteousness of Christ. And he does. When we turn, we can find life, even eternal life. There's so much more. We'll pick it up next week. Let us commit these things to prayer. Lord God, we we hear the wisdom of the world today, and it It assails your church. And many, even many righteous people have been 
carried away and are now tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So, Lord God, help us to hear clearly your wisdom through your word. Enable us to see who you are, and in light of that, who we are. Because when we, when we catch a glimpse of you and all of your glorious holiness and righteousness, we see you as you truly present yourself in Scripture. That confronts us time and again. Foster within us an appetite for your word and for your wisdom. For those who are here and have heard your word and have not yet placed their faith in Christ, we pray that you, Lord, by the Holy Spirit, would convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. It's ungetaroundable. It's inescapable. That so long as you remain apart and away from God, your own sin, your own righteousness abides. It remains on you. And so, my friend, I encourage you this morning, if you have not yet done so, acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. Confess Him as Lord. Turn away from your sin. Turn to God for life. We didn't read it earlier or elsewhere in Scripture. It talks about how the wages of sin is death. That's Paul and there's at least somewhat of an allusion here to Ezekiel 18. The soul who sins shall die. And so long as you remain in your sin, all that remains is death. But my friend, you can come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's taken care of all of that sin on the cross. And He is the one who has made provision for those who would hear, who would come to Him, that they might have their sins completely washed away. You would claim Christ as your righteousness and not your own. But then out of gratitude, you would live life for him. My friend, if you have not done that, today is the day of salvation. In a moment, Russ is going to lead us. That will be your opportunity to come forward and express how you desire to put Christ on in baptism. Being immersed, you are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And you are raised to live this new life with God, with Christ, and with the Holy Spirit. We can help you with that even this morning. Brothers and sisters, you've heard the word of the Lord, even the word of your God. Is there any, any attitude, any thought, any manner of living that you recognize in your life that you need to repent of? In a moment, you know when Russ leads us, that's your opportunity as well to come forward and express these things to to pour out your heart before God. And the good news is, is that when we surround you with love and lift you up in prayer to our God, our God is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness, all of our sin. He does it by the blood of Christ. He does it for each one of his children. And so in, in a moment, again, you know to come forward and express those things. And, 
And maybe it's, uh, maybe it's something altogether different. Maybe it's not related to what we talked about per se, but it's something that's been nagging at you this, these last couple of days, this last week, last months, years perhaps even. You know also when Russ comes to lead us, that'll be your opportunity as well to come forward and express these things that are on your heart. Again, we'll, we'll surround you with love and we'll lift you up in prayer. But each one of us is accountable to God. And so, as Russ leads us, the lesson is yours, the invitation is open. Come now while we stand and as we sing.